From the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. We're happy to be with you today. We are. Um, we are still in our kind of unusual time uh, of very unusual time. And getting more unusual. It seems some states are going backwards. Yeah, it's fine. Here in Pennsylvania, we had uh, the governor recently said that uh, certain businesses had uh, couldn't have uh, indoor events. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, we're- we're all trying to find our way and and learn how to handle this virus. So, yeah, it's a tricky time. I don't envy people making hard decisions. I feel like we're fortunate to be kind of able to do things uh, in not as unusual a way for us in that we homeschool, so we don't yeah. have a lot of questions about what school's going to be like, although yeah. some of the kids' activities we do. Um but your home, which is unusual for us, yeah. Yeah, we're used to you traveling. And well, just... I mean, it's not, that made it sound like I don't live at home or something. You're home for a long I'm time. I'm home for a extent, yes, I yes. haven't traveled, which has been a tremendous blessing. And so you've been working away on your book, as we mentioned, and mm-hmm. you were telling me about um, really interesting yeah. uh, thing you found in research for this book that I thought it would be really neat to share. I don't. I don't know all the details of it, but you'd have it. Yeah, I want to share this with everybody. This is, uh, first I have to tip my hat to Carlo Lancelotti and a lecture I heard of his almost a year ago. And he tipped me off to this book, a 1936 book by Wilhelm Reich. And it's called The Sexual Revolution. And I did a little more research on this book. And this is fascinating. Listen to this. I'll just read. This was written 85 years ago. Yeah. Okay. In his 1936 book, The Sexual Revolution, Wilhelm Reich stated quite explicitly that the goal of the revolution he wanted to inspire was to replace the religious sense of eros as a desire for union with the infinite, with the scientific view that the stirrings of eros are merely, quote, physical excitations related to, quote, bioelectric processes in the tissues. Indeed, Reich insisted that what we think are religious yearnings are in fact, quote, a vegetative function which man shares with all living nature and which strives for development, activity, and pleasure in the form of flowing, surging sensations. So this is what you get. Uh, this chapter in this book that I'm writing is, is called uh, The Loss of Theophany. Okay. And, and how we have, what does that mean? Theophany is how you, uh, is the, the word theophany means to show God. It's how the beauty of creation is a window into the beauty of the creator. Uh, you know, you see a, a starlit night and you're in awe of the mystery of yes. God. That's a theophany. You mm-hmm. smell a flower and it, it takes you to a deep, interior, mysterious place. Right. That's a theophany. And in a scientific view of the world, we reduce it merely to the physical thing in front of you. There's no window to another world. There's no, a sunset is just a sunset. It's just the the revolution of the earth, Mm -hmm. you know? You don't see the mystery behind it. That's the merely scientific view. And, And Reich here is showing us 
when you apply that merely scientific view to the body and sexuality, this is where we go. We, we reduce the great mystery of the one flesh union to sensations in our tissues. I think that just as an initial reaction to hearing what you read, it's so interesting to hear of someone making that direct intentional connection uh, that the, the stirrings of spiritual sensitivity are being eliminated as reality somehow. Yeah, yeah like, it gets erased from the whole picture. Yeah, and that um, that that's intentional. That's a goal. Yeah, that's uh, a value that um, you know he ascribes value to that accomplishment of that. Right. Um, directly, like we tend, I tend to think of it as sort of an indirect result of. Well, this happened. This happened. This has happened, and along the way, we somehow lost something. Yeah, but, no. But to have him say it so intentionally, and look where it goes. Listen to this. Okay. His revolution, he said, did not need to fight religion directly. Rather, it just needed to secure quote the sexual happiness of the masses via the findings of modern science, and then the need for religion, he said, would cease to exist. Reich made no bones, get this, Reich made no bones about the fact that in the process of attaining, quote, sexual happiness, that's his term, he says, the family, he's, this is his quote, the family will disintegrate irrevocably. Mm. But fear not, for any problem arising from this collapse, he says, will be constantly discussed publicly and overcome. This was his assurance. Yes. Don't worry if the family collapses Whatever, whatever problems that stem from that, right. we'll fix it. Regardless of the fallout, he says, it was a necessary price to pay, the collapse of the family, this is his own quote, for seeing whether the church is correct in its assertion of the supernatural nature of religious feelings. Wow. Wow. Here we are almost 100 years later. Yeah. And uh, virtually every societal evil, every social chaos, all the social chaos, the unrest, and the unhappiness we're experiencing mm. can be directly or indirectly linked to Reich's version of sexual happiness. Yeah, what an interesting phrase to hear from our perspective. Yeah. What he was hoping for, and there is an, you know, sort of from a secular perspective, a humanistic optimism going on here right people can get happier by this and society can solve problems there's like you know it's a very you know there's a positive tone there but we have the perspective of looking back and saying that didn't happen yeah that's not the result and maybe that means you've disproven your theory yeah the theory has been disproven yeah. i think officially here um Although maybe those still with blinders on would, would argue otherwise. But I'm reminded of St. Augustine. You've made us for yourself, O Lord. Mm -hmm. And our hearts are restless until we rest in you. Uh, what, a, what a an essential perspective for yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. Eros, this is this is the key point, the key takeaway. Eros, that ache, that hunger, that thirst for for love, for union, really and truly is a yearning for the infinite. This is what the church has always understood. This is what the church has always proclaimed. Sadly, it 
I know in the church I grew up in in the 70s and 80s, that didn't really reach me. We've been living in a, a crisis in terms of Catholic education and evangelization for a long time now, and I grew up in that crisis. Thank God for popes like John Paul II and Benedict XVI, who, and Pope Francis himself uh, affirms this, the, the yearning that we call eros, this goes back to the fathers of the church, they borrowed this language from the Greeks, eros is our thirst for the infinite. And Carlo Lancelotti in the lecture that he gave that I listened to some time ago says, uh, he says, the sexual revolution is an epical phenomenon. He says, really, it is the, not just one phenomenon among many, it is the, the phenomenon that marks our epic. And then he says, but based on Reich's own challenge to the church as to whether she's right about the nature of Eros, Lancelotti says, we can also see how the error of the sexual revolution will end. Quote, this is Lancelotti, it will end by a rediscovery of the full scope of human desire, of its infiniteness. Mm. So that's, that's what we're all about at the Theology of the Body Institute, is yeah. helping people rediscover that the yearning they feel is, is a yearning for the infinite. Yeah. The redirection of desire, that's the goal, not the squashing of our desires, but the redirection of our mm -hmm. desire toward what we really desire. I don't know where I heard this quote from. I didn't come up with it, uh, but it goes something like this. Uh, no one is so free as the person who desires what he really desires. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. I want to be free. I want to desire what I really desire. That's beautiful. Yes, share a question? Yes, please. Let's jump in. Okay. Um, this question is from a listener named Jillian. Hey, Jillian. Jillian says, I really enjoy Theology of the Body, and the insights really help me to love my faith more. The one thing that I struggle with is how we will not be married in heaven. I understand that marriage is only a sign of what is to come, but it makes me sad to think that our families will not be the same in heaven. Will we still be together as a family in heaven? Could you explain this mystery a little more? Bless you, Jillian. Actually, what we were just talking about is the perfect setup to talk about this question. Yeah. So why does Jesus say in the resurrection we're no longer given in marriage? Mm -hmm. Here we have to go back to that biblical frame. We talk about this a lot on the podcast, how the Bible begins with the marriage of man and woman but it ends with the marriage of Christ and the church. Mm -hmm. And the beginning here is the foreshadowing of the end. The union of man and woman is just a glimmer. It's just a, a, a foretaste of the ultimate reality. When Jesus says we're no longer given in marriage and the resurrection, what he's saying is you no longer need a sign to point you to heaven when you're there. But what is the there? It's yeah, interesting. That's kind of her question. That's her question. What is not only what is the there, but what's there? What's there? <laughs> right? Yeah. The the one thing that leapt out in Jillian's question was it makes me sad. Yeah. Okay. Right there is is the indication that Jillian, no fault of her own, as I was saying, we've grown up in a in an era of 
where there's a crisis in Catholic education. We don't really know our faith. But anyone who is sad about heaven is not thinking really about heaven. It's in, it is impossible. If we really know what heaven is, there is no sadness. Mm -hmm. there's, the sadness is gone. Every tear, except tears of joy, will be wiped from our eye. Every sorrow will be turned to joy. So if we have a conception of heaven that allows sadness or sorrow or loss, then we don't really have a, a correct perception of heaven. We shouldn't think of marriage and the family being erased or deleted. We should rather think of them of, as being uh, fully redeemed and completed mm -hmm. in the marriage of the Lamb and in the family of God. So nothing, Jillian, let me just reassure you in that fear in your heart, in that sadness in your heart, let me reassure you in the deepest place of your heart that nothing on the other side is lost, nothing is erased, nothing of what is true, good, and beautiful, we can put it that way, nothing of what is true, good, and beautiful will be erased, will be lost, will be deleted. Everything that is true, good, and beautiful about your marriage, about your family, will be fully redeemed, uh, shined up to a, a new level of polish that we can't even imagine, and, and completed in the marriage of Christ and His Church, which brings us into the family of the Trinity. Uh, so will you be with your family? Well, we do have to acknowledge that God respects our freedom, and we can't, we can't say with certainty that we're all going to, in the final analysis, say yes. Uh, but assuming you and all your family say yes to the wedding invitation, and, and here's, here's what I, I want to add here, that if, if heaven really is a marriage, it's not going to be a shotgun wedding. Nobody's forced to go. Mm -hmm. uh, hell is a real possibility, hell meaning eternal separation from God, because God respects our freedom. We shouldn't have this image of hell as God vengefully sending people to hell, but rather, if anybody's in hell, it's because people actually choose not to go to heaven. So here's a suggestion. Let's choose to go to heaven. <laughs> Let's use our freedom mm -hmm. to enter into that eternal marriage. And, and Jillian, if you and your family make that choice, you are going to be together forever in what the church has always called the communion of the saints. And your love for one another that you've known here will in no way be erased. It will be fully redeemed. It will be fully taken up. It will be completed in a superabounding joy and, and goodness and celebration that eye has not seen, ear has not heard here on earth, how, how awesome it's going to be. I kind of want to add a little of my please, own. Please, please. Not just answer, but more like questions or topic to discuss here um, in that I think in the kind of in our human nature, we when we have someone we know and love who's crossed over into the afterlife mm -hmm. that um, we tend to want to imagine what that person's life is like um, and how maybe their interactions are with other people that have also crossed over, that kind of thing. And I can share an example from my own Please. heart that um, before I was born, my parents, actually before any of their other children were born, their very first um, child was a daughter who was stillborn. 
Your and oldest sister. My oldest sister, who was named Christina. And um, they did name her and bury her, but um, obviously none of the siblings ever met her. And so we knew about her. And then later, our father died. And it was very natural for us as children to kind of picture our father and Christina together in heaven. Oh, and in our minds, he was still a young father and she was still young, you know, right, also. Right. And they were, he kind of had this place like in heaven, sort of being a father to her in mm, our imagination. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't have any way of knowing for sure, you know, that that really was what was going on, but I don't think there's any harm in us imagining no, it that no, way. No, no. And I think that, you know, when we think about different people we love and, you know, many of them maybe had, you know, like all human beings, you know, kind of aspects of their personality that weren't fully redeemed. So when we're trying to imagine them in heaven, I feel like, you know, is it all right to imagine them as long as it's not sinful, kind of realizing their potential yeah. somehow in heaven? Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, I also have this tendency to kind of imagine when someone's a friend of mine say, um, you know, her mother dies. Well, my parents have both died. So this imagining of them meeting in heaven, I don't know if that's really real, but she and I are friends here and it would have been nice if our parents could have met. Can they have met in heaven? I don't know if this sounds silly, but Not, it's I kind don't... of much more practical it of a question yeah, then. not silly in the least this is this is what we call the communion of saints mm -hmm. and you know before i i launch here on any theological ideas i just want to just have reverence before the mystery of what eternal life is uh, we really for whatever we might be able to conjecture whatever we might be able to gather from what scripture teaches in the final analysis we always have to have that line of St. Paul in mind, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. We don't know fully. We only know dimly here on earth. But we can say this for certain, that everything that is true, good, and beautiful about human relationships here on planet earth will not be erased. Everything true, good, and beautiful about human relationships will be taken up and fulfilled, fulfilled super abundantly. And I love this image, which is so human and so right to have this image of your dad caring for your sister Christina, whom you never met. She was stillborn, as you said. Um, and I think we, 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 of course, we have um, allowance, isn't even the right word, but. It's, it's human and it's right to imagine that. Uh, and I think of, you know, sometimes Jesus appears to people as an infant. Sometimes Mary appears pregnant mm -hmm. to, with Jesus, like, right. you know, when she has apparitions in the here yes, and now. Right. And so we're, these are, well, Jesus died as a 33-year-old man and was resurrected as a 33-year-old man. And so saints will, theologians, saints, mystics, imagine, conjecture. I've heard it said that 33 is the, quote, perfect age, and in eternity we'll all be, quote, 33 years old. Well, what does that even mean? What are years in eternity, right? right? What does that even mean? I think when we, when we see these encounters that saints and visionaries have had with Jesus 
here on planet Earth, and he shows up as an infant, or Mary shows up pregnant with the Christ child, it's an indication that we're, we're outside time, we're outside chronology, we're outside uh, the world as we know it. It's another dimension. And I think we can rightly say that somehow every dimension of our lives, from conception to our death, will be fully present. I'll, I'll be little 12-year-old Christopher, and I'll be however old I am when I die, and I'll be who I was when I was conceived. It will all be one moment because it's outside of time. We, we can't even, we can't imagine, we're so bound by time, we can't imagine what being outside of time is like. But I think keeping that in mind, that gives us permission to, to imagine our loved ones in all stages of their, mm. their lives, mm -hmm. which is kind of exciting. I never really thought of this, but I'll get to know you as girl, you know, mm -hmm. before I knew you right. somehow, mysteriously, when we're outside of time, because your whole you right. will be present, right? That's pretty exciting. It is. I like that. Jillian, I hope you're at peace. I hope, you're at, I hope that helped you and other listeners out there. Uh, the main thing to keep in mind, I'm just going to underscore it one more time, nothing, nothing that is true, good, and beautiful is erased. And there is no place in our vision of heaven for sadness or loss, only super abounding fulfillment. That's where we're headed. Uh, our next question is from a listener named Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca. She says, can you talk about how God's command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply relates to us today? And then she adds some things that have caused her to want to understand this more. And I want mm -hmm. to explain that okay. so we get her specific questions. She says, the command came before they had sinned. She's also heard a church leader say that having children in Jewish families in the Old Testament was vital and esteemed because they were expecting the Messiah. So having maybe having babies after Jesus was born is not as vital. Um, she says, how do children hold a special place in God's plan today? So many people are convinced that having fewer children is an essential part of the solution to climate change. So those are some of the issues she's struggling with. Yeah, gosh, we could go in lots of directions with this. I'm trying to discern on the spot here what direction to go in in our limited amount of time. So I'll just say much more could be said and should be said than we'll have time to discuss right now. Okay. But let me let me lay out some basic principles. Uh, the be fruitful and multiply is directly related to God looking at all he had made and saying, behold, it is very good. Okay. The call to be fruitful and multiply is an invitation to participate in the goodness of existence. Mm. And that goodness of existence is something that in our fallen world, where there is so much pain and suffering, we question, yeah. is it really good? Mm -hmm. Is it really good to be alive? Is it really good to bring a new life into this world when we know we're bringing this new life into a world of suffering and pain and sorrow? And our own experience of suffering and pain and sorrow can lead us to conclude, I don't want to bring somebody into this pain. I don't want to cause another person to suffer as I have caused. And we can almost think 
it's the loving thing to do to not bring a person into this painful, sorrowful, suffering world. Mm -hmm. I would agree if pain and sorrow and suffering had no redemptive value, power, or meaning. And I have felt, we have felt in our marriage, how painfully and pointedly coming together as husband and wife in our union, in our marriage bed, brings us face to face. And, and in that union, throwing wide open the doors to the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And this has always been our prayer as husband and wife. Lord, if it is your will, let there be life. Lord, if it is your will, let there be life. This, we, 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 this is the invitation of the church for husbands and wives to come together and always be able to say, Lord, if it is your will, let there be life. Now, when, when we're in the natural time of infertility, we know with 99.999% accuracy, it's not the Lord's will for another child to come into the world. But we still keep those doors open. Lord, if it is your will, let there be life. And, and the invitation that the church holds out to us to have that disposition in the marriage bed is a call to faith that life is good, that existence is good, right. that it is good for another human being to exist, that every human being that exists, it is good for that human being to exist. <laughs> if you exist, it is good that you exist. It is never bad that someone exists. Everyone who exists, it is good that you exist. That's what the church is calling us to believe. And also the church is calling us to believe that the sorrow and the suffering and the pain that is very, very real in this fallen world is also, in as much as we open it to the gift of the, what the church calls the Paschal mystery, and by that we mean the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Paschal mystery is the promise that our sorrow will turn to joy. The Paschal mystery is the promise that everything we suffer will be redeemed if we enter in to that Paschal mystery with our suffering. The marriage bed itself and the, the, the throwing open the doors of fertility to the presence of the Lord and giver of life is the call to that faith, mm. that it is good to exist and that the suffering itself will be redeemed. Husbands, love your wives. How? as Christ loved the church. The two become one flesh. Why? This is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, it refers precisely, the two becoming one flesh, refers precisely to the Paschal mystery. How did Christ love the church? By dying for her and rising for her. And there is the pledge, there is the promise that our pain, that our sorrow, and the pain and the sorrow of the children that we bring into this world can be redeemed. The, the, all of this comes together, like in a microcosm. It comes together in a concentrated dose. If you're, if you're aware of it, it's all there when the two become one flesh. Mm -hmm. And the choice to render that union sterile, whether we know it or not, is really saying it's not good for life to exist.
it's and there's no redemptive power here. There's no hope here. It's it's a hope contracepted intercourse is a hopeless statement. Uh, and I'm not I'm not saying this to assign blame to people, but I'm saying it to invite people to examine what is really being said. When we render the sex sex act sterile, we're we're really it's an act of hopelessness. Uh, and we're we're saying it is not at some level the body itself is saying it's not good for the for another life to exist there's a a quote from john paul ii in my mind i feel like it might be from gospel of life but you will probably know just a very simple sentence it is better to exist than not, than to, not exist. to exist am i am i remembering yeah, that yeah you from are him? and i i don't remember myself exactly where it where it's from but <laughs> Uh, it's an absolute truth of our faith. It's something just to sit with, yeah, really to ponder, and um, just to look at our own lives and the life of life of any person, and to just understand how what a guiding principle that is for all our moral decisions. Uh, you know, to just trust this is a a God who expresses, you know. It, his triune nature through this, you know, abundance of new life yes, and yes. sharing and communion that's possible through our existence in his image. And that's all good. It's I good. love how you connected that. His words, it is good and very good. And then this be fruitful and multiply. It's like live in my image here. Yeah. Live in my image. John Paul II says that their experience of nakedness without shame was a participation in the original good of God's vision. God looked at what he made and said, behold, it is very good. And when, when shame comes into the picture, it's an indication of the loss of that vision. It's not an indication of the loss of the good. The good is still there, yeah. but the, sh the entrance of shame is an indication that we've lost sight of the goodness of our existence. And, and that is what I believe Rebecca is, is wrestling with here, as we all wrestle with, because we're all fallen. That's a real wrestling match. Is it good to exist? And Wendy, when you said that, it's better to exist than not to exist, I had this image of this potent shockwave of truth going out through this podcast and reaching hearts. Like, I'm convinced there's people listening to this podcast right now who needed to hear that. And when you said, just sit with that, I know there are people out there who need to sit with that. I need to sit with that. Because mm -hmm. I, I, there are times when the suffering is so painful. Uh, being a human being is not an easy thing. It's not for the faint of heart. And we're either going to numb ourselves to the pain and then feel, you know, not even be open to the joy because we're so numb to the pain. We're also, when we numb ourselves to the pain, we numb ourselves to the joy as well. Or we can even get to the point of, of throwing in the towel altogether and saying, I would rather not exist. That's where pain can lead us. And I just want those words that you said, I want you to say them again, because they the way you said them with your Wendy voice, which as our listeners have said, is like a hug, <laughs> <laughs> which is so true. Your voice is like a hug. Would you say those words again, Wendy? And I want everybody out there, all you podcast listeners, listen to these words and sit with them. Let mm. them reach those painful places in your heart where you may be questioning mm -hmm. whether it's good to exist. So say that again for us in your mm -hmm. Wendy voice. Mm -hmm. 
it is better to exist than not to exist. Amen. 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 Was there more to her question? I remember there are some layers to it, and I'm not sure we got to all of it. Mm -hmm. um, something about the seeking the Messiah. Versus... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Jewish tradition here. Yeah. Of course, there was the promise to Abraham uh, about fertility, and you have descendants more numerous than the stars. And this is why marriage was such a privileged state in Jewish culture, because of that promise to Abraham. And, and yes, they were waiting the Messiah. Uh, does that mean we shouldn't be fruitful and multiply now? Well, I, I think you could argue we should, because the Messiah has come, mm -hmm. and the promises are made, and the promises are real. What promises? That are, all your sorrow will turn into joy. Those promises. Because those promises are real, and we have the guarantee of the Messiah himself, this allows us to be fruitful and multiply with even greater joy. Greater joy, I like that. But all that, uh, I think we also have to acknowledge this, and you and I know this well as married people. Uh, every married couple knows this. This is not, say, this is not saying that uh, you should just, you know, willy-nilly bring children into the world. Uh, it should be done thoughtfully, the church says, with prudence and with responsibility. Mm -hmm. And there are, and this is what I meant when I said every couple knows this, there are certainly circumstances in, a, in married life, every couple knows this, where it would not be advisable, it would not be prudent, it would not be the responsible thing to do, given certain circumstances, mm -hmm. to bring another life into the world. Um, but that never justifies rendering the sexual act sterile. This is reminding me of a, a kind of a telling conversation I overheard you have once years ago with a, a unmarried man who had I've had a conversion to um, valuing chastity mm -hmm. and kind of looking forward to someday being married, but not understanding why does the church allow natural family planning as an option. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember him saying something like, okay, I'm not having sex now, but once I'm married, we'll just have kids. Why would you not just have kids? And I'm, I was just like a fly on the wall hearing this conversation. And, but I was touched by your answer. You said, well, you'd use NFP because you love your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and what I think you meant was that there's a need for spacing and acknowledgement yes. of some of the physical, emotional toll of mothering. Yes. And the babies. limitations of our humanity. Right. But I, I loved that, you know, just hearing that exchange you would because you love your wife <laughs> so i i don't know i mean it's all it's it's all mixed in there we don't want to come across sounding like we think the church says it because it's good to exist therefore you know we are never right to avoid pregnancy it's, right. it's, not, it's not that that it's more either. nuanced than that it is yeah. but but even let's take the worst case scenario where say you have a couple who has every just reason uh, not to be bringing another child in the world. They're in abject poverty or, or disease. Uh, you know, maybe the w woman, the wife has cancer or something, and a child is conceived in those circumstances. Guess what? It's still good that that person exists. Mm -hmm. Everything God does is good. And God does that. That child exists because of God. God wanted that child to exist. Nobody exists whom God did not want to exist. How do we know God wants you to exist? 
because you exist. <laughs> and that, behold, it is very good that you exist. That is not to say uh, it's always easy. I, we've been talking about how it's fraught with sufferings and trials and struggles. The good news is there's the promise, and I'm banking on it, that all sorrow will be turned to joy. Whew. Yeah, that's our hope. There it is. All sorrow will be turned to joy. Well, everybody, that's all we have time for on this episode. We're very grateful, as always, for the questions you've submitted. Keep them coming. I want to remind you as well, if you have not treated yourself to the online virtual conference and all the wonderful talks that you can have access to, you can get the premium pass for our virtual conference. It's still available, and you will not regret, I promise you, you will not regret diving more deeply into over 80 presentations from lay people, men and women, from clergy, uh, theologians, experts, just moms and dads and single people who are just sharing their love and their experience with theology of the body. It's been so enriching for us watching those talks, and we know it will be enriching for you. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we look forward to being with you on our next episode. Until then, remember, as always, you are an indispensable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute, with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.